Welcome to With That Being Said, a podcast on life, love, and everything in between. I'm so glad you've decided to join the conversation. Hi, I'm Esther Boykin. And I'm Erica Turner. And with that being said, black Black folks folks really really do do go to therapy. therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a great episode. Um, Well, certainly we think it's great, especially because we're both therapists and that, you know, anytime we can talk about therapy and black folks in therapy... Sounds like a good day. So, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about our guest today. She has started some an awesome movement that we will get into. So, yeah, excited to. I am thrilled to have Mina on, and I think it'll be great. Are we ready? Should we like let's just bring her in and like jump right into it? I think that's perfect. Yeah, let's do it. So today's guest with us is Mina from RespectYourStruggle.com. I am a big fan. Erica, I think I say that for every guest that comes in, but seriously, I'm always a big fan. It's true. It's totally true. So I'm a big fan of uh, Mina and the work she's doing at respectyourstruggle.com. And so I just want to say welcome. We're excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I think one of the places, probably the best place for us to start is tell us a little bit about respect your struggle, kind of how you got started. Um, Eric, as I said, Eric and I are big fans, particularly of the mission and the vision you kind of have. Um, But tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you get started with this, with the website and the blog? I mean, I feel like it's more than just a blog. So tell us a little bit about that. Right. Well, I launched Respect Your Struggle last year in 2014, but the story actually goes further back, I would say, around 2012 when I started grad school. And 2014 was my last year of school. Um, I was approaching graduation. But even when I enrolled in college, I felt like, okay, this is a safety net. I just got out of undergrad and I was too afraid to really step out into the real world. And so I was like, I always knew I wanted to be a social worker, but then again, I don't know. And so I just went to school for the heck of it. Around that time, as well. I was just struggling with so many things in my personal life. I was struggling with my father's death. I was struggling with um, midterms, with just school, and just this overall perception of who am I and where do I want to go? And so when 2014 came and it was time for me to graduate, I was really, really afraid of what was to come next, just because my whole entire life, I kind of defined myself by my successes and by my education. And so I'm like, all right, I'm not taking out another loan to go back to school. So now what am I going to do? And I kind of was just going through so much. Um, And it's crazy because basically I was just struggling with my worth, with my identity, again, with my father's death. I was struggling with depression all over again. And so I found myself in therapy, um, trying to sort out who I was and what I really wanted to do with my life. And I thought to myself, I had a lot of shame about the idea of being in therapy about identity and this idea that I'm really depressed. I'm having a lot of anxiety. But then I thought I can't be the only person who struggles with these types of things in life. And depression is something I actually really dealt with as a child from being bullied, being teased. And so I felt a lot of that weight coming back on to me. And so I just was like, you know what, let me find a therapist. Let me find someone to talk to. And then I just decided, you know what, I would like to have more of a creative outlet because I know I can't 
can't just be the only person struggling with life at this point. And so that's kind of how Respect Your Struggles started. I was just really, I'm really a creative person and I just wanted to have a creative outlet. I love to write. And so I was just like, you know what, let me start this movement for people who are just like me. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of being weak. I'm afraid of what's coming next, but I can't be the only person like this. And to be very honest, those fears are actually the things that equipped me in becoming the person that I am. And so it's like, instead of being afraid to struggle, what what would life look like for me if I actually embraced that struggle? And those are actually tools that I learned while I was in therapy. And so that is actually what helped me to launch Respect Your Struggle, because I just really wanted to start a movement for people who wanted to really learn how to embrace their humanness. I love that's that. Such an, yeah, that's amazing. That's such an amazing story. I know I'm sure Esther has thoughts and I just kind of jumped all in there. Um, but <laughs> I just wanted to say, I think, you know, that point in your life where, you know, you've defined yourself by something, you know, in your case, it was defining yourself by school. And then you realize sort of, okay, what does it mean to not be in this role anymore? What does it mean to not be doing this thing anymore? I think that's an issue that comes up, you know, in therapy all the time, Um, you know, not just for clients who are you know, just for folks who are graduating from school, obviously that's a big one, but, you know, at various points in their life sort of journey, you know, marriage or having kids or divorce or whatever, where sort of the narrative you have of yourself changes and you're trying to sort of pivot and figure out, well, what does this mean? And have I been defining myself by something that's not sort of permanent? Um, And the fact that you were able to take such a difficult point like that and use it to be this, you know, positive force for other people. I just have to say, I'm really impressed by that and just think that's really awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I clearly share Erica's sentiment. Uh, it uh, is, it it's is just a challenge, a challenge to learn how to honor that struggle, honor that struggle mm-hmm. and treat it as something that's really special. Right. Right. To see that, I think, you know, as you sort of talked about, you know, talking about that in therapy is sort of getting to a point where you see struggle, conflict as a place of, you know, this is a beginning. This is a place where I journey through, not a place where I sort of give up or feel that I failed because things aren't as easy or, you know, um, straightforward as I thought they were going to be. So, yeah, I just think that's really important. Yeah. And I agree. And I feel like one of my, through a struggle, one of the models that um, I abide by in life is that your struggles don't define you. They equip you for the journey. And that is something that I actually had to practice within my own life because it's like all my life, I um, just had this idea that if I failed, I'm a failure. If I make a mistake, I'm a mistake. And once I began to graduate, I just looked at my life and was just like, you know, well, oh my gosh, like what, what was all of this about? Because like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And so what is this, what is all this success? And these degrees don't really mean anything to me because it's like, I still kind of feel like a failure. I still kind of feel like I mean, I'm a mistake, but then I had to realize like the things that I'm struggling with really doesn't make me who I am. 
It's just a part of my being. It's a part of my evolution. And so I feel like that's a core part in what I try to get out there with respect to struggle, because I think it's just so common for people to beat themselves up when they get things wrong. And it's like, we're human. We're not going to get things right. And that's a part of the journey to learn. You know, that's what helps us to grow. We learn things in life. We don't, we're not born experts at things. And so if we allow ourselves a vulnerability to be open to our circumstances and the things that's happening in our atmospheres and in our lives, that is what's going to help us evolve into the person that we truly desire to become, to allow ourselves to say, you know what, I spent my whole entire life being defined by school and now I don't know who I am, but you know what, how about I take a look at what's really going on here and allow that to equip me to be a better person and say, you know what, Jasmina, things have to change here. And Mm -hmm. now what? Now you're not going back to school. You're not doing all these other things. And so what are you going to do next that's going to show you who you really are? And it's obviously not this piece of paper. Right. I was going to ask you a little bit about... I know you had mentioned, you know, sort of the um, movement sort of going in a new direction or a new sort of, you know, angle that you're working on. And I had also saw on your website that um, that you had done or were in the process of doing workshops that kind of bring this message to folks. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that sort of the arc of where you're going and, you know, maybe some of the workshops you've done or are doing or um, things like that, if you could speak about that. Right. So when I, when I launched Respect Your Struggle as well, I was in, like I said, I had started dealing with depression. I had went to therapy. Um, and I will admit, I kind of feel like within that journey, I started to define myself through my depression as well. Um, and so when I launched Respect Your Struggle, we were particularly geared towards the mental health movement and eliminating the stigma. Um, and the core audience were people who struggled with depression, anxiety, and mental health related issues. But as we grew, I began to hear from people who were struggling with other things in life, such as their identity, their self-esteem, trying to tap into their passion and understanding their purpose in life and not being defined by career, which is a big thing for me. And so I've realized this huge spectrum that was really right in front of my face. And so in the midst of that as well, I realized that these particular things that we struggle with, such as finding our career and finding our identity, are a lot of the things that can attribute to mental health. And so I expanded Respect Your Struggle more into an online publication for, you know, everyday ordinary individuals who are like, you know what, I'm struggling with something, but I want to turn these struggles into strength. And so maybe I am, maybe it is for someone who's struggling with depression, but they're not aware that it's depression because for them, they're just struggling with finding their career purpose or, you know, their identity in life or what they want to do next. And I feel like a lot of the times we have this idea that we just want to be these perfect individuals, but perfection is actually what's tearing us down because it's unattainable. And if you're trying to be something that does not exist, well, then that's just going to be a struggle in life altogether. And so Respect Your Struggle still has that core component where we are um, reaching out to the mental health community, but we've expanded more into a public 
publication now and more of a digital magazine, which is we're in the launch of revamping that. And so while we're revamping that, we're in the works of working on workshops, working on events where we can go out to people and talk about different aspects um, of the of lives that people struggle with on a daily basis, not just core, not just the core of mental health. I love that in part because I, I feel like, and Erica, you can tell me if you see it too, but like I feel like there's sort of a parallel in terms of some of what we do at Group Therapy Associates and that feeling of basically like therapy is not a dirty word and it's not just about diagnosable because I feel like that's what I hear you saying is that really you're looking to expand beyond sort of the diagnosable common mental health issues such as depression or anxiety or even some other things like PTSD but to sort of open this up to that same process that was helpful for somebody who's struggling with something that we've given a clear name to like depression can actually benefit from that exact same process if the struggle is how do I redefine my identity outside of career or school or motherhood or whatever that situation is? You know, how do I move through just the challenges that come with being a human being and being in life and being in relationships and all of those kinds of things that here's this process, you know, that, that therapy and and understanding and talking about the struggle and what we learn um, as we move through it is valuable for everyone. Right. Well, and I think you bring up an excellent point, Mina, in that, you know, obviously a lot of folks sometimes don't even realize that they might be struggling with something like depression or anxiety, you know, that they might sort of see it as, you know, I'm just struggling with work or whatever. And and they're beyond sort of, um, they may have a diagnosable condition that they're not even aware of. Not that that's the -hmm. only thing worth treating or the only thing worth looking at, but we certainly do see that as well, you know, people who just aren't really sure what's happening um, because the feelings involved are so complicated and difficult um, and that kind of thing. So I think that's a really great point. Right. Thank you. And that's what I, you know, I feel like that's my own experience as well, where when I did go to therapy, it's like, all right, I'm struggling with with depression, but what got me here? And it wasn't just that I woke up one day and I felt this way. It was really just a bunch of circumstances that led to this particular moment. And um, it's like getting to the foundation. It's not focusing on the surface. It's getting to the foundation of what's really happening. And for me, I know well, what's happening is I just don't know who I am. I feel lost. I'm, I'm about to enter the real world and I'm not, I don't really feel equipped for this. And so this is starting to wear me down. I'm starting to feel these particular symptoms and I'm starting now to get back in my past of these feelings of being bullied and feeling worthless and feeling like I have no definition and I'm, I just don't know who I am. And so that's why I wanted to retailer it because I feel like some of us do have that particular diagnosis and aren't even sure of how we even got to this point. And so it was important to me to try to get to the particular things that we all struggle with, especially since people were reaching out to me and letting me know their story. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, sort of a video that you had posted on the Facebook page um, about, I think it was called Black People Don't Go to Therapy. (laughs) And I was just... (laughs) obviously it made me laugh and it's doubly funny considering that I'm a black therapist and my boss is a black therapist, Esther. Um, And so, you know, obviously some of us do go to therapy or work as therapists. 
Um, but I think it really hit on something that I've noticed in, in, in both the wider culture and in your blog in particular, and your blog sort of addressing it head on this idea that to not ask for help or to be strong, that in order to be black, what that really means is that you have to be strong enough to not need help. And maybe you can pray about it. And that's, that's pretty much it. Like you don't ask for help. Definitely have heard, I've had black clients say things like, well, you know, white people go to therapy, black people don't go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this idea that to be a strong black woman or to be a strong black man means that you don't reach out and ask for help. Um, It seems like this is something you're really sort of countering, you know, in your blog and in your website. Um, And I just wondered, you know, was that was that from particular messages that you heard or just things you've seen in a larger culture? Or um, how did you sort of, you know, come to sort of address that? I think it had to it's a cult. It was a cultural perspective, but it also just came from personal experience. Um, I know when I started to go to therapy, my my mom was not happy about it. Um, (laughs) and she just didn't understand. She, you know, when I told her it's because I'm feeling depressed, she told me, you know, cheer up and things will be okay. And coming from a culture where I, I never really saw African-Americans go to therapy or, or even minorities going to therapy. And then also I went to social work school, which is very, my NYU was very clinical, Um, And I was practically the only black student in the class of 30 kids. And I felt like that meant something that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could be the I could be the only black person in a clinical social work school class that that means something. And so I felt like with respect your struggle, I really wanted to cultivate authentic um, the practice of being authentic. And the truth is we are all human and we all struggle with particular things in life. And mental illness does not discriminate. It does not, um, you know, people don't deal with mental illness because of their finances, because of um, their racial background. It's something that we all can be prone to. And I feel like within the culture, um, to me, it seems like this identity behind being a strong Black woman is how many Black women will define themselves. And then my question is, well, what does that even mean? What does it even mean to be a strong black woman? Because for me, my definition of being a strong black woman means I am able to own my weaknesses and I'm able to say, you know what? I'm not okay today. I woke up, I felt like crap today. Today I need to go make a schedule with my therapist. Today I'm acknowledging my weaknesses where for some people it's disavowing that and saying, you know what? I'm too, I have too much going on to feel weak. And I feel like that is what deteriorates the spirit because it's like, we have to know when we're not okay and learn how to cultivate practices that embodies the mind, the soul, and the spirit. Or if we just walk around ignoring our health, especially our mental health, then that is going to be our downfall. And so I highlighted that issue because I really just want to, redef- want to redefine, well, what does it even mean to be a strong Black woman? And I found that to be very important because I know I, I feel like there are a lot, a lot of different definitions around there. And it's kind of like breaking those barriers and trying to get to the core of the idea that Black women, too, struggle with mental health. And if you believe that being strong is what's going to prevent you from getting mental health, that's a problem. Because it's not. That's not going to help with the situation. And so 
I just really wanted to change the conversation around mental health, but also just being a, being a black woman myself, I felt like I really wanted to co- um, pay attention to the cultural aspect behind it. I love that. And I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox about it because <laughs> we could be here all day. But I, <laughs> But for me, one of the things that just struck me as you were talking about that is is how changing the conversation and how just one person, you know, just Mm -hmm. you beginning to open that door, how many other people get touched, you know, as, as your mom's perception begins to change, as you help her to understand what therapy is really about and like, and how it benefits people and, and friends and acquaintances. And that, that sort of has this ripple effect beyond kind of our own immediate circle. And I think sometimes it feels like, well, how would we change this big cultural perception of, of what mm-hmm. it means to, to be a Black woman, to be a Black person, and, what, and how that relates to mental health? But I feel like changing, although it seems like such a big thing, changing it really is about kind of these small little, each of us individually just being authentic and being willing to talk about it. And I'll piggyback on that and saying that, you know, and maybe you have some thoughts about this in terms of relationships, because I'm a big proponent of saying, you know, we teach people how to treat us. Mm -hmm. And so that piece that you were just talking about, about, you know, really, it's about making time and making taking care of ourselves a priority rather than shoving it to the back burner or pretending it's not happening, but saying, no, I am struggling. And that's worthy of being addressed and taken care of doesn't just help us as individuals, but it also transforms relationships and help children begin to believe that it's okay to take care of themselves and and our partners begin to feel like it's important to take care of us and themselves because we've set that as the precedent. So I'm just curious if you get some info or either personally, or, you know, you get some feedback in terms of how it shapes or has changed other people's relationships, either with family or with, you know, spouses or, you know, significant others. Right. I feel like it's oftentimes people will define us by our attributes and our particular characteristics. And so I know I have in particular friendships where people would define me as because of everything that I've dealt with in life, that I'm strong and that, you know, I don't come off as a weak person and that I'm a good person and that all these really nice terms and different definitions of who I am. But then sometimes I have to remind people that don't get so caught up in the good because I'm human. And I don't want where there's a moment in life where I have a breakdown and you don't know what to do with me because you've never saw, you've never seen this part of me where I'm vulnerable in a sense and where I'm honest enough with myself to just experience my human emotion. And I find that you know, like, for example, crying, I feel like in relationships, whether it be parental or romantic or even friendships, it's that common perception of, okay, well, I'm having a bad day today, or I'm crying. And instantly people want to pat you on the back, or they want to give you a box of tissues. And I feel like in a way, when you look deeper at that, it's like, well, what's happening here? It's, is it because you are trying to empathize with me? Or is it because this is so scary for you to see that you feel like you have to do everything now in this moment to cheer me up and to not make me this person that you're not used to seeing. And so I feel for me, it's really, really important for us to learn how to be honest with ourselves 
and not to be afraid to be vulnerable because I think that we should, it shouldn't be our everyday task to hold ourselves up to a particular esteem because that's what people define us as. You know, I want people to know that Mina does cry. She does feel sad. She does get weak. And I am able to honor our relationship and our friendship because she's honest enough with herself and she's honest enough in our relationship to show me those sides of her so that when I do see it, it's not so scary to me and I don't feel like I have to run or suppress this particular emotion because it's so foreign to me. And I think that's what happens. I feel like we get so caught up in, even if we're not trying to be perfect, I think we just get so caught up in the, the everyday role of doing and getting things right that it comes off as this idea of us living to that standard of being perfect. And so when we, when we have those mental breakdowns and it's time for someone else to see us as see that raw, naked side of us, for some people, it's scary. And I think that's why it's so important to show that vulnerable side of you to the people in your community and the people that, you know, you build connections with. Because in the, at the end of the day, that's who we are. There's not one particular side of mm. us. There's so, we're multifaceted. And so it's important for us to be able to practice vulnerability enough to show that to the people who are in our circles. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that you're bringing up this vulnerability piece because this is something that we've been talking about a lot recently in particular, and we talk about often, especially in our work with couples, but it, you know, it extends past couples. I mean, obviously everyone ha- everyone needs someone in their life that they can be vulnerable with. Everyone needs right. someone that they can tell their secrets to who can see those those raw parts of them and not turn away, who can be present for it. You know, that's not obviously not going to be everybody in your life and it shouldn't be everybody in your life. But mm-hmm. I'm always sort of asking clients, like, is there someone who, you know, you can tell your secrets to who, you know, who you feel like you can be your you know weakest self or, or feel sort of completely vulnerable with? Um because it's it's very hard to get through life if you don't have that. Um, so I I love how you're sort of tying in that piece about the importance of being vulnerable. That it's not just you know that being vulnerable is in and of itself a sign of strength and a sign of health um, mm-hmm. for each of us. So I have one last. I'm totally changing course. I realize okay. that. <laughs> Um, sort of but to wrap it in wrap around back to kind of all the really great things um, that you're doing at respect your struggle and sort of back to that piece about looking for the creative outlet can I just say I love the t-shirts and the tote bag thank you they're They're awesome they are they're so cute I told I need to get one for sure um So Esther, I, we're going to end up with like matching t-shirts on the same day of work. We're going to think we're total weirdos. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be the first time. It'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love the shirts and I was just sort of like, was it just kind of on a whim? What made you think like, you know what, I'm going to, we're going to do shirts. We're gonna, like, this is a movement and we're going all in on it. You. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So the the inspiration behind the shirts is, again, going back to this idea of changing the conversation. And I look at the shirts as not just a fashion statement, but a conversation piece. And so I know I know how I am withholding. I'm very conscious of what I buy. 
Um, and I'm always intrigued by something that has a phrase on it or saying that I know I can ask someone like, what does that shirt mean? You know, and I feel like with respect your struggle, the idea of someone wearing that shirt says a lot about what they're trying to put out towards the universe. But I think it also says a lot about who they are. Because I think it says a lot about you when I feel like a lot of us are somewhat defined by what we wear in a sense. It it says some of us are tomboys, some of us are into high heels, and some of us love wearing graphic tees that say something, you know? And so I felt like for me, well, I know what respect your struggle means to me. It's about owning my weaknesses, owning my flaws, and I'm going to make that a movement. I'm going to make that a part of my daily um, self form of self care. I'm going to make that a practice to nourish my spirit. Um, and so I felt like wearing that on a shirt just declared that, you know, I felt like it took it more from this perception or a mindset. I felt like wearing the t-shirt now makes it a declaration. And so that's why I came out with the shirts because I felt like it's not only for the person who's wearing it, but it's also for you now to declare that over your life. But now you can actually start a conversation with someone else about what respect your struggle means to you and what it could possibly mean to someone else. Yeah, I love that. And I love the the concept of it as conversation starter. I mean, really, this is about changing a right. conversation um, at a cultural, you know, societal level. And I can't think of a better way to sort of prompt the conversation with people in a really kind of organic way. Um, so I think that's right. fabulous. Thank and you. I mean, come on. Yeah. Who doesn't like to <laughs> Exactly. Well, Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a great conversation. We really love what you're working at. We're excited to see um, the relaunch of respectyourstruggle.com. Um, but in the meantime, people can definitely go check it out. Um, it's, mm-hmm. as I said, respectyourstruggle.com. You can also find Nina on Twitter at uh, mm-hmm. respect. I'm going to have you tell me be so I don't butcher it. Anytime it's not like <laughs> your first and last name, I butcher it. So people can find you on Twitter. What's, what's your name on Twitter? At respect RYS. Okay. So respect RYS on Twitter, uh, online, respectyourstruggle.com, pick up a t-shirt, get out there in your community. Um, number one, you'll look super cute. Number two, <laughs> you can be part of um, this movement to really sort of open up a conversation about what does it mean to to struggle and to have strength. I mean, I really, I like that sort of our strength is in our struggle. So thank you. Thank you ladies so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much, Mina. Of course. So that was a lot of fun. I love Mina. She's so much, she's just so cute and smart. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I really admire the way that she has taken something very difficult and found a way to make it positive and, super helpful for everyone and that kind of thing. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. And really, I mean, is sort of that whole like living by example, you know, somewhat fearlessly, or I always like to say courageously, like, I don't think it's fearless. It's not that she, you stop being afraid to do things, but you do it anyway. Right. Um, but, you know, really courageous about sharing her own personal story as a way of helping other people. I, you know, you know, I love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, and I, I think, you know, you bring up a great point um, and that we were sort of talking about in the podcast about how, you know, a healthy sort of 
a healthy, meaningful life is not a life that's without fear or without anxiety, but it is finding ways to manage that fear and manage that anxiety. And that all the effort we spend trying to pretend like those fears aren't there or those anxieties aren't there, or those worries or sadness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we spend so much energy trying to like make those feelings go away. And there's so much freedom. I think Mina points out when we embrace them and sort of use them to figure out, okay, what do I need? What's important to me? What's the next step? Um, it makes a big difference. So I agree. I mean, it really is, um, I guess it's, you know, it's sort of that going back to the idea of just living more authentically, you know, and that, and the idea that we, I don't know why we all get sucked into this idea that like, if I'm strong enough, I won't have these experiences where really your strength is in being able to say like, I'm having these experiences, I'm having a hard time and asking for help and, and learning how to cope with, because everybody's life is a struggle at some point or right. other, you exactly. know, some of us have more of it than others, but at the end of the day, we all struggle. And that idea of finding your strength in the struggle mm-hmm. rather than buying into this idea, which I do think is, I think it, everyone experiences it, but there certainly is a cultural piece too. I think as minorities that right. strength is about enduring right. pain and suffering rather than learning how to, get the tools and the help and the support to move through it. Right. That you don't have to stay and suffer as some sort of like cross to bear. Exactly. Of your, you know, strength. Um, Well, especially I think as black women, I think we, especially there's this idea of, you know, the strong black woman and what that means. And that means sort of, owning, owning is not the right word, but like just pushing through and just dealing with whatever comes and you don't need anybody else and you don't need a man and Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, we need people. Like human beings are pretty much the most social creatures on the planet. So (laughs) people are necessary. Yeah. Biology people to get says differently. Life. Yeah. <laughs> Biology says, no, we actually do, in fact, need someone. Exactly. You know, and for some of us, that, that preference is a man and and that's okay. And, like, yeah. and I think just getting to a place where that feels okay. Like it's okay to want and need the things we want and need. Right. Um, and not feeling stuck in this box of like somehow it's not okay. And I, I see it a lot with in relationships, mm-hmm. you know, when people, and you know, I've women who either struggle to get in them or are in relationships that are not fulfilling. And this idea of like, Oh, like I have a friend who's always just like, no, I just got to keep it moving. And on the one hand, I always sort of admire her persistence, mm-hmm. like her commitment to just kind of like you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. I definitely believe in that. But I also sometimes worry that, you know, underlying that, that, keep it moving is we keep it moving without ever really addressing the things that aren't working for us right. or that we're having a hard time with rather than sometimes you got to stop moving. Right. Like, sometimes you have to have a come to Jesus meeting with yourself. Yeah. Like that's necessary. <laughs> it is. Like sometimes we got to like, it doesn't feel like it's possible, but sometimes you got to like hit pause in life and go, hold on. Right. This is not working. Exactly. Like, How did I get here? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. What is important to me? What matters? 
it's it's amazing how long we can go without asking those questions, mm-hmm. without stopping and going like, okay, what do I really care about? Like, uh, I was talking to a client recently about like, how do you define success? Because it's so easy to get caught up in other people's versions yes. of success, like family and parents and outside world and sort of the larger social culture. But, you know, we have to stop to go, what is our version of success? What is our version of a good life? What is our version of, you know, health um, and wellness? So I really admire the way that Mina has sort of brought in this conversation, you know, not just around sort of mental health issues, but also around sort of what does it take or what do you need to live your best life? Yeah. And that it really is your job to define that. Right. There isn't, you know... um, Oprah's not really going to tell you how to live your best life. No, <laughs> no, she's not gonna, exactly, not exactly. <laughs> you know, like it's, there's these, there's all these really great resources, but I think just as you said, like figure, how do you figure out what that means for you? Um, because that's the first step, like what makes somebody else happy or feel fulfilled or successful is not necessarily what's going to make me feel fulfilled and content and, and well in my life. And if I'm chasing somebody else's vision, you know, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of like moving forward towards a goal that doesn't mean anything to me. Right. Definitely. And there's nothing worse than a lot of hard work for something that you don't really want. (laughs) No, that's the worst. I've been there and that is... It's the worst. Literally the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although I would think my mom would say that it was part of my issue in high school. Cause I was like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if I get an A. So why am I working this hard? <laughs> so yeah. So if you're in school right now, forget this conversation. Forget like, that ever happened. Work really hard for your A. <laughs> <laughs> then when you graduate, we'll reevaluate this whole. This whole thing. This whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's funny because I think, you know, you and I have talked and I think we share Mina's uh, just that there's sort of existential crisis of like, I, I'm the smart girl. Like right. I, that's my thing. That's my thing. That's my jam. <laughs> right. Like that's what I do. <laughs> and, and the problem with that is you get on this path of like, well, okay. So if I'm the smart one, like you're on this really ambitious path and A, you cannot stay in school forever. Right. I mean, you can, but you it's can, probably but not the best. Dear plan. Lord, don't. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> um, but also it encourage you're motivated to surround yourself with increasingly educated, smart, interesting people. Mm-hmm. And so the more you build that circle, the less special those qualities are because you're sort right. of like, wait a minute. But we're all really smart. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're all smart. So what makes me special and unique? And if you haven't taken the time to mm-hmm. develop those other aspects of your personality, of your selfhood, then you're sort of left, you know, trying to figure out like, well, who am I beyond being the smart chick or the yeah. sort of ambitious chick or whatever it is that you've sort of hung your hat on. I think yeah. especially when you're younger and you're kind of making those transitions, although they can persist over time. <laughs> um you know, it's, you get really sort of within a role, like you have a role in your family, you have a role in your school and your church. And so as you become an adult, you're trying to figure out well, what else does my role look like besides being this one thing? Yeah. Whatever that one thing is. Yes. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, kids get pigeonholed in all kinds of ways. I think they do. And I think, uh, and I always, I 
like I hesitate to say it because I feel like every person has this struggle, but I do feel like for minorities and for women, there is a lot of outside messaging about what your role is supposed to be right. that we settle into without a lot of forethought early in life. Right. There's a lot of messages about what it, you know, like a woman is supposed to be, whether that's, you know, motherhood. And, you know, I mean, people talk about that all the time. Like after a certain age, why aren't you married? And as soon as you get married, why don't you have kids? Why don't you have kids? And and for <laughs> and for some women, after a certain age and you're not married, people still want to know why, like, well, maybe you're just going to have kids alone. Why aren't you having them? And there's this pressure to fit into that. And I think the same, and then you add on these other layers, you know, depending on your, you know, cultural heritage and those kinds of things that. Right. Because, you know, there's only like three types of black people. Right. Like that's the rule. Right. You've got to fit into like one of the three categories. And if you don't, then I don't know, you're, you're shit out of luck essentially. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's really interesting because there's sort of, you know, I mean, my kids are old, well, older, old enough to make me feel old, you know, they're in their late teens, almost 20. Um, But it's interesting because I see sort of, I see some growth in that area where like, I don't get the sense that they have as much pressure, mm-hmm. but I definitely right around middle school and high at the middle school and the beginning of high school for both of them watched like in their circle of friends that, you know, it was, you know, if there were like 10 friends, like eight of them would fall into like either I have to be an athlete mm-hmm. or they would take on this sort of, um, kind of like ghetto fab persona, which I mean, mm-hmm. to know, I mean, you have a nice sense of like kind of where I live and, and the, like deep in the burbs, <laughs> deep in the burbs. like, you know, these are, these are kids who are like, you know, like your parent, you know, your these dad's like a partner at a law kids. firm and like your mom is, you know, a stay at home mom or she's a doctor or like, these are very professional families. Right. Um, but it is fitting into that, like, sort of like these stereotypical roles, like, uh, this is what I'm supposed to be, right? Because this is sort of what, you know. This is what a black person Right, is. this is what a black person These is. are the options. These are my options. It's it's Athlete or ghetto fab, apparently, were the options <laughs> given to your kids. <laughs> yeah, and so it was sort of interesting to kind of watch them not feel like they connected with either of those sort of groups and then have to sort of, like, figure it out. Um, yeah. With, you know, another, you know, with kind of, some friends fell off and that kind of thing, but it did make me feel better because I also felt like, well, at least they're doing it now and not like in college right. and in grad school and in their like mid twenties where you're sort of like out in the world going like, oh, I'm supposed to figure out like who I am and what, what role I fit in. Right. Huh. Yeah. Nobody told me that. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> Yeah. So I think it was, it's an interesting conversation to have, I think in a lot of ways. So maybe we'll have Mina back Yeah. after we get our t-shirts. After we get our t-shirts. We'll have like a whole, like, respect your struggle, like fashion day. And like, we'll put on (laughs) our shirts and then we'll have her back and we'll talk about maybe after the launch of the new site. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So it's time for my favorite Mm-hmm. I feel like it's my favorite a little bit because if I haven't thought of it, I know that you have. <laughs> and that no would pressure. be, yeah, no pressure at all. Uh-huh. Um, so it's time for RLW, read, listen, watch. Like what, what, what's on your list right now? Like what are you 
reading, listening to, watching. That's awesome. So what I am listening to this week is a um, podcast. It's very, you know, famous radio show and and I listen to it through podcast format, This American Life. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, probably familiar to some folks listening, but I specifically wanted to um, point to an episode, a re- very recent episode. It came out maybe three or four weeks ago. Um, and it was called, um, oh, let me look up the name here. Um, of course, I blanked on the name just as we... <laughs> Pull it up. Oh, it's called What's Going On in There? And it's episode number 567, 567. And it's kind of a difficult story that they talk about in that podcast, but I thought in that episode, but I thought it was super interesting and heartfelt. Basically, a big chunk of the episode is dealing with a teenage girl who's in an abusive relationship and she journals her, she sort of, uh, what is it? Voice diary, I guess. Voice diary is her experiences. Um, And I'm not sure over this, the stretch of time that the, that she's journaling her experiences, but I know that she was in the relationship, I believe from something like 14 to 18 or somewhere around there, 14 to 18 or 14, 19. Um, But it just really shows that pattern of abuse and how, how easily, you know, especially someone so young, um, can get sucked back into it. I don't think, I think when people, you know, they hear about the cycle of abuse and they hear about abusive relationships. And I think from the outside looking in, it's very easy to say, why do you stay? How did you even end up in this situation to begin with? It's very easy to be judgmental. And I think hearing her story kind of helps you understand a little bit more about, um, you know, just what that process is like and how you, you know, can think that maybe this person will change. Maybe they'll get it together. Maybe Mm -hmm. they'll be able to love me like I need them to love me. Um, and sort of that constant, that constant cycle of, of abuse and disappointment. So it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of uplifting and interesting and, um, really, I think does a good job of, of showing that process in a way that people can sort of, hold on to a little more than the sound bites that they hear kind of in the media yeah. about it. I like that. I mean, it's, you know, um, we actually, well, I guess they weren't doing a lot of domestic violence research when you were there, but we went to the same graduate program. So I think for a lot of therapists that came out of that program, we just spent a lot of time talking about it because that was the major research that was happening at, um, at Virginia Tech at the time. And so I'm always, even though it's not necessarily my primary area Mm work-wise at this point, like it's always interesting to me. And, you know, sometimes I meet with parents or I go to schools and I, you know, like the statistics are like one in three, um, you know, by eighth grade, it's like, maybe I think it's one in five by eighth grade and one in three by the time um, kids are like seniors in high school have been in an abusive relationship. And I think we just in so many ways we do a disservice to our, our kids by not talking about the complexities of intimate relationships. And I get it. Like, I mean, especially as a parent, I get it. You know, I don't really want to talk to my, I don't want to think about my babies, like being in love and, and the full progression. Like you just kind of want to talk about like, you know, abstinence or safe sex or, (laughs) you know, like you just want to hit the, like sort of the major point, the major point and like the safety piece. But I think, um, 
it does, I mean, it sounds really sad, but it sounds so important to start to hear that story because I think we do it on two levels. I think one, we dismiss um, the importance of intimate relationships for teenagers and adolescents. Yeah. You know, we get to a certain point and, and I get it's that perspective, right. um, you know, of being an adult and looking back and going, this is not the most important thing in your life right now. Right. But then to remember, like, you know, when I have clients, parents who are clients and they're talking about that with their teenagers, I'm always sort of like, but this is happening for them for the first time. Right. Like you're looking back on it and you've been through this process and maybe you've been through this process multiple times mm-hmm. in adulthood. But this is happening for them, your, your adolescent, for the first time. So yeah. everything feels bigger and more important and more dramatic because for you, it's all you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. And it's so interesting how we forget that Mm -hmm. what that really felt like. And that's, you know, at 14, 15, 16, like you're not worried about bills (laughs) and your career (laughs) trajectory. (laughs) Like this is it. And it is so intensely, I mean, emotionally it's intense and it's this huge. And, you know, back to your part of like, we're wired for connection. Like it's a really big deal. And that's the point in your life where you f- start to have to come to terms with that your most intimate connections eventually in life are not going to be your parents or your siblings. It's exactly. not going to be that family of origin. And that's kind of scary and exciting. And I think, you know, if we, you know, on that whole opening up conversations and having new conversations train, like, how do we have more conversation about that? Like, more than just, you know, wrap it up and like don't get pregnant and don't get HIV or chlamydia or any, you know, of those. <laughs> any of those things and just focus on your books and no dating like right we've got to come to a place where we're willing to have some really honest dialogue and so which yeah. oh I interrupted you you had two points I don't remember my second point maybe you already made it I'm I sorry. I probably already did. I what did excited. I say? You were talking about <laughs> <laughs> the first point was we do a disservice to kids about sort of intimate relationships. Yeah. And then I'm not sure what the second um, point was. I wish I, I'm close to being able to read your mind, but I'm not quite there yet. I don't know. I probably already Getting said it. There. Or it'll come back to me and I'll just say it in another episode randomly. Randomly. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, and I don't know if this is where you were going, but what I was sort of thinking was, I think we also expect domestic violence or we expect abusers to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean in terms of like their physical appearance, but I mean, in terms of, I think there's a, there's this idea that they're, that you're going to meet someone and you're going to know that they're an abuser, like right off the bat. Yes. And that's not how it works. Like nobody goes on a first date and punches somebody in the face. (laughs) Like, that's not something that happens. literally said those exact words a week ago (laughs) to somebody else in a conversation about, because they were saying, like, I just don't understand how you get there. Yeah. And that's why, like, well, no. It doesn't start like that. Nobody is, like, dragging you by your hair on date two. Like, I think in in the podcast, it was months before any sort of, like, significant – yeah. Abuse started and it didn't start physical. It almost never starts physical. It almost always starts with sort of drawing people away from their family and friends and yeah. things that matter to them. That's usually kind of the first step. And even that didn't start until, I don't know, I believe four to six months in for this yeah. girl. So yeah, it doesn't just start are, with. It doesn't. The red flags early on are so subtle and could easily be interpreted 
by as meaningless or harmless. Right. And it's sort of or I quirk mean, or yeah. And I think short of, you know, kind of a professional or frankly, somebody who's been in that relationship kind of relationship and has gotten out of it, um, who kind of knows what the the overall picture looks like where you, you know, I can kind of, I can meet people and they start to tell me and I kind of go, mm, that doesn't sound like that's not on the right path, but it's like, it's a collection of tiny little things right? that I go like, well, I've seen those tiny little things lead to this. Right. But there's no guarantee that's where it's headed. Exactly. And the likelihood is, and maybe it's not. And most people don't see it. And then once you see it, it's now you're in. Right. Now you're, now you have feelings for this person. Now you yeah. care about this person and it's even harder to, to exit mm-hmm. when it starts to become abusive, either physically or otherwise. Yeah. And I think as much as there is so much shame around it and, and frankly, victim blaming, in adult relationships, sure. imagine being 16 or 17. Right. And probably having some parents or adults who are already kind of like, you don't, you shouldn't be this serious or this relationship is just sort of like silly puppy love. Right. How do you start to talk about something as complicated um, and scary as being in a relationship where, um, because you don't stop loving that person the first time or the second time, or frankly, for a lot of people, the 50th time right. that something terrible happens. Right. I mean, they say on average, it takes someone seven times to leave their abuser, seven sort tries. of tries yeah. before it, they actually are successful. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing and it's a very complicated thing. And I think people, you know, from the outside, it's really easy to minimize sort of the emotions involved that you mm-hmm. could love somebody who could hit you, but, you know, they're not... I'm not excusing it, of course, but they're not hitting you all the time, right? Like they're hitting you sometimes. Right. And sometimes they're buying you flowers and doing nice things for you and saying, I'm so sorry and making you promises and maybe fulfilling some of them. But then there's other times where they're beating you. Like there's, it's not this sort of just ongoing. Exactly. String of assault or whatever. And I think we, which sort of goes back to that piece, that misconception around like what it means to be strong. Mm Mm-hmm. That if you were stronger, you wouldn't succumb to all of the emotional, psychological things. And that's really, that's much more difficult to overcome and to, and to draw yourself out of. And that's a lot of what holds people in these relationships. It's not that somebody is like, oh, it's okay that you punch me occasionally. Right. It doesn't feel okay, but there's this other very complicated dynamic of not feeling like somebody else will love you. Like you're worthy, you've been isolated from all these other important relationships. You you know, there's, you develop almost an us against everyone, or at least a lot of times that happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. That's a good one. That's a good one to share. Yeah. And the slightly more, slightly more upbeat, not entirely more upbeat. <laughs> I actually do, for once, have a read, um, I don't think I've talked about this book before, but it's one of my favorite and it's a little hard to find of late, um, but it's called The Pocket Therapist by Therese Brichard. I hope I'm not completely butchering her name, Um, but it's basically, and she's written some other books about her sort of journey through depression, but The Pocket Therapist, I love, it's like literally every chapter is like a page. It's a tiny book, (laughs) you know, like five inches by five inches kind of size. Um, And it's just sort of like a collection of like the best 
either insights that she herself has had mm-hmm. and frankly some of the best pieces of advice she's gotten from like all of her many many years of like therapy and psychiatric treatment mm. but there's like really great stuff in there and it's one of those like I'm having a bad day well just open it and pick a page <laughs> and it's good um yeah so I I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that out there I think that's good too so that's awesome you. yeah I want to check that out it's pretty good all right. So therapist problems. It is that time. Yes. I have a therapist problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure other people can relate to because I think some of us just have that. What We talk about like that therapist vibe. Yes. Which just makes people want to tell you everything about them and their history and their lives and their relationships without you even asking for it. Um, and so I think I, I told you this before, like, I absolutely adore my dentist and my hygienist, but, and she's, I mean, she's good. Like, I mean, it's always like sort of appropriate conversation. So I don't want to, I don't want her to be listening and be like, oh my God, I'm never telling her anything. <laughs> it's not, it, she's good. She just always sort of, it reminds me like people want to share. And so when they find out that you're a therapist, they want to tell you everything. Yeah. And I feel like there's this struggle to find like the right boundaries because, Mm -hmm. you know, back to kind of our earlier conversation with Mina about the perception of what it means to be a therapist and be in therapy. I feel like I have this kind of like, you know, greater good responsibility to like, make sure like I am representing all therapists everywhere for all time. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) No pressure in that one. No pressure at all. But I do, I feel like it gives people an opportunity in like a setting that feels very like laid back, whether it's Mm -hmm. like at the dentist or at a party or wherever to kind of engage with somebody who's a therapist and, and hopefully shift their perception perspective on therapy and therapists and like, no, we're all, most of us are just totally regular people, like easy to talk to. It's very, like, it's fun. You can, it's not always fun, but you know, (laughs) like it's cool. We can talk. And so that combined with just, you know, my own natural disposition towards like listening to people tell me sometimes very inappropriate things. I let people talk. Yeah. And talk and talk. Yeah. And sometimes every now and again, people just take it way too far. Like you've told me things that really should not be revealed like at a bar while we're watching a football game. Like you probably should be saving that for an actual, like your own therapist behind closed doors, just because it's either incredibly emotionally charged. Right. You know, and then it starts to feel like it's this therapy session in a very inappropriate place. Um, or just really personal. Right. You know, like it's just about things that you should share. Right. Like to everybody. To like everyone. someone ought to, to a earn stranger. Your trust for that. Yeah, to a stranger. <laughs> you know, I'm really not talking about like friends. Like I'm talking about No, we're talking about strangers. Strangers and like very casual acquaintances. Right. Like my hygienist who sees me like three times a year or whatever. Right. Um how do you like navigate that like boundary between wanting to feel open and friendly and and let people have like sort of this like like a sample right (laughs) like the bourbon chicken at the mall like it's a sample (laughs) of what it could be like for you in therapy and at the same time like sometimes we're out like we've had this conversation like sometimes like I'm at a party like I just want to be at a party yeah I want to have a glass of wine and like chat with my friends and, and and not do any therapy work 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough because I, like you, like, I like to hear, I mean, I'm a therapist because I like to hear people's problems. You know, I was asked recently, like, are you stressed out by hearing people's problems all day? And I'm like, no, I'm energized by hearing people's problems. I love it because I want to work with them to try to help them fix it or try to make it better. Um, So I think I do have a tendency to let strangers go on Mm -hmm. unless I'm just in a really bad mood. But mostly I think I have a tendency to let them go on. But it does, if you start sometimes you realize like you've kind of let them go on and you're now down this path where you're like, crap, like they've revealed all this stuff to me. I can't just sort of leave them now and be like, okay, I'm going to go talk to my friend on the other side of the room now. It's been good. Um, Here's some tissues. Yeah. See the tears are coming. Like I see you're crying. (laughs) That's, you know, I'm sorry that that's happening for you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it is, it's, it's tough. I think, um, I probably default to probably letting them talk. And then if it gets too intense, ultimately saying um, something like, you know, maybe you should, you know, consider talking to someone, um, talking to a therapist or asking if they have a good friend um, that they can talk to and sort of saying, like, I appreciate you sharing this with me, um, but... I'm going to go get my drink on now. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just brought out more hors d'oeuvres. Go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I sort of default to the same thing. And, and then I don't know, I will say that over the years, um, my husband has gotten good at like, he'll, you know, he'll scope me out like in the corner, <laughs> like kind of locked down in conversation and is good about kind of like coming through and, and sort of being the rescuer. Like, Hey, I totally want to introduce you to this person or, Oh my gosh, can you go get this thing over here on the other side of the room? <laughs> Which gives me that, that out without making people feel like I'm just sort of like running away from their story. Cause like you, I don't always, I rarely want to run away from their story yeah and and my husband actually does the opposite of your husband which is if somebody starts telling him like a relationship issue he goes have you talked to my wife she's a family and couple therapist oh no my husband totally does that (laughs) (laughs) so he is both an enabler of the problem and then will rescue me later (laughs) well i need to i get need to help my i need to get my husband to help me with the rescue part (laughs) yeah he is um actually yeah he yeah, he definitely does the same thing as sort of like, um, which is an interesting, I feel like in some ways they get it out. Yeah. I, th- I, I recognize that this is, while it is uniquely therapist, it happens to everybody. Right. And so they sort of, as long as they bring us with them, they always They've have an always out. Got an as soon as someone starts to tell a story that makes you slightly uncomfortable, you go, oh my gosh, you should totally talk to my wife. Should totally talk to my wife. She's really that. helpful with that kind of stuff. That's what she does. Every day. She's a professional. <laughs> And then he's like out, like <laughs> off somewhere else, like having a really good time. And exactly. Like talking about silly, trivial things that you don't have to think really hard about. Exactly. Whereas I'm like then using my therapist brain. Which yeah. Which is, you know, so much work. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We work really hard. All right. Well, I am, I'm excited for the next episode. Yeah. I'm always excited for the next episode. Like I always sort of feel like sort of like melancholy, like, oh, it's time to wrap up. We'll see you next time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you have not heard all of our 
other episodes or you want to see what's coming up next, you can get find us on iTunes and lots of other podcasty places. Yeah. As well as just online um, at estherboykin.com backslash podcasts. Also, conversationsoffthecouch.com backslash podcast. Yes, two websites, same podcast. <laughs> we just want to make it really easy for you to find us. And you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Esther BMFT and Erica. I am at GTA Therapist. Yay. All right. All right. We'll see everybody next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>